Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Cody, I was just enjoying myself, uh, based on your recommendation, some Orlando Magic uh, Los Angeles Clippers from yesterday afternoon, a little matinee in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, man, it's really fun to see Markel Fultz going out there and spinning and twisting and floating and reversing and I think he had a career high 28 points yesterday. Just what a what a lovely comeback story in in a season of basketball that has been I did his the basketball's been amazing as we've talked about. There's been so many compelling storylines up and down the league. It's the most com- competition we've ever had. It's the most parity maybe we've had in 30, 40, 50 years. It's been absolutely incredible and all anybody can talk about is how horrible everything is out there. But Markel Fultz is a beacon of light. This is this is beautiful, Ben. I, I didn't watch as much as the game as I would have liked. I watched like the third quarter, about half of the fourth quarter. I got stuck watching the end of Celtics Jazz last night when I sat down. It's so like, oh, this is a good game. I should probably watch this one because it, it's kind of close. But the thing about Markel Fultz, I love so much. And it, it came to me when I, I, I like I like clipped a play yesterday, right? I think Nicholas Batum gets it down by the basket. He This is a point guard. Comes help side. Gets up to the square and just inhales the shot, just swats it, right? Keeps it in bounds. Great defensive play. Then he kind of lopes down the court. His body's kind of all over the place. He gets hit and he goes sprawling across the court. And I'm like, when I post this clip to my thinking basketball people, all I can say is like, this block is spectacular. But it like defies just how cool Markel Fultz is. Like in a league where like, and I'm not I'm not like making an anti-efficiency argument, right? I'm not trying to say Markel Fultz is like an all-NBA type player. But it's so cool to see just this unorthodox player that really doesn't fit into any kind of schema. He doesn't really have like a clear skill set that's going to like put him into any kind of award categories. But he's just athletic. He plays with like a certain verve. I don't know if you see him, but recently he'll like make a chest pass and like hold the chest pass like for an extra second. He's like holding the shot for him. It's really strange. But I'm like, this is just a quirky, unorthodox dude with a great skill set. And he is a joy to watch. Mark Elfold says he he has vaulted into my top five favorite players to watch. Oh, wow. Top five, top five favorite to watch. That's high praise. The one, um, it wasn't a chest pass. The one he had yesterday that was maybe in the fourth quarter, maybe after you turned it off. Uh, Unbelievable live ball dribble pick and roll action where he's got it on his right hand and we see this skill now used in the league it's unbelievable the blending of the dribble into the pass as the ball is coming up and sitting in his hand he turns it over throws a lob up into the sky Wendell Carter Jr. comes down the lane and catches it and he threw the pass well Carter Jr. was at the free throw line so it was a very early pass and he, Markel just holds the follow through on the pass like a waiter with a dish over his head. And the Magic broadcaster after the play goes, he threw that. When he threw that, I thought he threw it out of bounds by accident because it just was like out of nowhere. He just like threw it way up in the air, really soft, really early, really fun stuff. But or unorthodox players, I mean, we should probably do a podcast at some point on just great unorthodox players and what makes them so fun and what makes them successful. But in Markel's case, just sticking on him for another minute, if we can indulge ourselves before we get to our our entree today that I want to discuss, he's got this herky-jerky style, right? These like very sharp stops and starts. I'm wondering, Cody, because this obviously is in your wheelhouse. You've been you've been telling us and texting us about Markel the way the way I text other people about Quentin Grimes. Um, what do you have other herky jerky players that you love? Like, is there a lineage here for you going back to Manu Ginobili or or something? What what is it about this style of play that uh, you know gets you gets you so hot and bothered at night? <laughs> Well, that's certainly one way to put it, right? But okay, there's a couple of avenues to go with Markel Fultz. So what I love about him, Manu Ginobili, when we talk about unorth- unorthodox players, he kind of, in my mind, like vaults to the top. I'm sure there's other ones, of course, but just like his play style, I feel like being unorthodox 
And just playing to your own like rhythm is a skill in itself. Like it throws off defenses, it keeps them guessing. But actually, I kind of thought like the way that Markel Fultz drives, and I even saw this like a couple of years ago with the way he's able to spin and stuff. He reminded me sometimes of Tony Parker with his drives. Whereas you know Tony Parker's a better finisher. Tony Parker's faster, right? He's he Tony Parker's just a better player offensively, of course. But it feels like that same lineage, right? And I think you know like Jalen Brunson's another player that really relies on the herky jerky style, and. Yeah, I'm sure there's a couple other players that I'm thinking of, but the thing that overall with Markel Fultz that I just really love, and I'm just, you know, we're going to really indulge ourselves right now, Ben. I'm going to weave in the bucks for a second. I think I think being a good vibes player is really underappreciated, right? I think being a guy that just like, it's fun to be around you works. And I don't really know much about Markel Fultz. It seems like he's a dude that other people like being around. But with the Bucks, I feel like it's the same thing with Drew Holiday. He's been like teammate of the year twice, right? The kind of guy you just kind of like, it makes him a better player because he's just good to be around. You know how it is. Like you just work better in teams when you like your teammates, even if they're not necessarily quote unquote better than other people. It just works better when you get along. And same with like Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez, Giannis. Like these are some pretty boring players on the Bucks. But the fact that they're boring and just like vibing with each other, right? It, it makes them so much better because every year, year out, they just, they get along. And I feel like Markel Fultz is kind of in that same, that same lineage as well. I love that we're five minutes into the show and you've already landed us. It was a very subtle, very brilliant steering of the ship right toward Pfizer Forum in downtown Milwaukee. And you just landed us uh, square on the, on the deer's head uh, at center court there. That was, that was very uh, graceful and tactful of you. I, I like that Tony Parker call out. Um, the other thing about Markel that's just so fascinating, I think I think Dave Dufour was the first person I heard mention this a while back. 76ers, you got these guys that you drafted as part of the process, Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons, and they both have these incredibly weird shooting situations on offense. Of course, you know, if people don't know about it, Fultz, uh, they said he had the nerve thing in his shoulder and he changed his form and he forgot how to shoot and all this stuff. And of course, Simmons shooting, um, should he be shooting with his right hand? What happened to his confidence on his outside shot? He was never a great shooter, but that whole thing. So you have this, this whole history here. And now, fast forward to 2023, Fultz, seems to be well we can talk about his defense because he had a ton of steals and made some pesky plays but he's interesting because I think he's clearly a more functional offensive player than Ben Simmons whereas Ben Simmons is still quite skilled defensively even after his injury situation and uh, missing time last year and all that stuff but big 610 body he can switch he can guard multiple positions but he is basically out of the rotation as of now in Brooklyn because he's a liability on offense. That gets me thinking about the latest video that we did on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel where we're, we talk about protecting uh, weak defenders or the weakest link in the defensive chain. So if you haven't seen this video... Uh, I think you can. I think we can make it through the rest of the podcast if you haven't seen the video. This isn't one of those like pause and you have to go watch the video to make it through the rest of the podcast. But it's going to help because there's some technical things in the video. But just conceptually, the idea is over the years, players have been targeted on defense, especially in the playoffs. And now we're seeing it in the regular season, Cody, because as an aside, hey man, regular season basketball is is crazy complicated. That's something maybe we can talk about as we walk our way through this. But players have been targeted and then defenses have tried to find a way to protect the targeted player. Um, in the old days, and I have a quick line about this in the video, but I think in the old days, you had something akin to, well you know, Steve Nash is our weakest defender, so we'll just stick him on Derek Fisher. And that's a natural matchup because they're both six feet tall. But every once in a while, if your team's best player happens to be six feet tall, um, if you have Dame Lillard out there or something, um, maybe we can slide him to the other guard who's a non Maybe if you have a defensive specialist, we can put Nash on Bruce Bowen or something like that. Now the game is about using ball screens, pick and roll, 
creating mismatches that way. And so you're pulling weaker defenders in the playoffs into the pick and roll action to either force a switch or to attack their weakness defending the pick and roll. This is what we see with bigs. Um, you know, if you're too slow footed and you can't come out to the perimeter, you concede that pull up three. If you come out to the perimeter and you're slow footed, you might get beat off the dribble. If you're small, again, in the old days, if you're small, you didn't want to get matched up with, I mean, like Jerome Kersey, let alone Shaq, right? I think I use Shaq in the video as the line, but the reality is in the old days, the way the game was played, the way the game was officiated, the way uh, the post-up was used so predominantly, if you're Steve Nash and you get switched on to by like a 6'9", 240-pound forward or something, they're going to go to that mismatch right away in the post, try to get a seal and a basket. Today, it's like, uh, if you're really small and you're really weak defensively, we want to create that switch and then we attack you. We, we use up your stamina, we put you in foul trouble, and we put the defense back in rotation because they have to come help you. So the whole video is about how teams can mitigate that, how can they stop that, the tactics about that, and it led to a ton of questions that I want to talk about today. And I've, I've been blabbling on for like five minutes, so I'm sure you have thoughts um, before we even get into some of the user comments that we want to respond to. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah, I, I really loved this video, Ben. Like, I, I think you do great work. Your the videos are excellent. This, this, I don't know, I walked away being like, yeah, I feel like I've seen strains of this, but I never put a name to it. And um, the, the shift defense, I think, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I, I really like that it's simple. It, it makes sense for what's going on there. But like you said, there's kind of a, a change, a change in the weather, right? Because when you get the switch in the past, right, instead of focusing on that post-up, getting the post-up mismatch, it's like the little mismatch. And sometimes you'd get that in the past. Like I can envision, you know, I think you have a play in there where maybe Pau Gasol gets switched onto Steve Nash and he kind of cooks him a little bit, does a step back, hits a mid. And I feel like these were really famous plays back in the day where maybe a big would get switched on a small and the small would ISO. The big like really exaggerates by pulling up the shorts. It's like maybe slaps the ground. <laughs> right. you, you can't see that anymore though, just because, you know, the guy's shorts are getting a little shorter, which is great, right? Because these guys' quads are developed. You got to be showing like skies out, thighs out kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? And guys need to be showing that off. So that's that's a great change in my mind. But I think what's really cool then is then, you know, you, you talk about this lineage going from, from those kinds of plays happening sometimes to, I, I think LeBron, you said, might be the first superstar that really popularizes like mismatch hunting. Right. So instead of being able to hide the Steve Nashes of the world on the on the Derek Fishers, you call up your man so you yeah. can get that switch and attack them. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, describe, you know, how do you get from that kind of offense to where we are now? And like, what is the counter to being able to to protect those weaker defenders now? Well, uh, pre-switching was, of course, the first big one, I think. Um, but. All anytime you have a defender that's going to be targeted in this way, think about what we've talked about with the Nuggets and Jokic or Minnesota and Carl Anthony Towns. You can do something like hedge and try to temporarily put two players on the ball and then recover. And this way, if you can recover, you don't incur a huge breakdown because everyone's on the same page. There's a, there's an element of reactionaryism versus Pro, proact, pro, proactivism, pro, reactivism versus proactivism. Um, this is the part of the show where where language <laughs> I lose the capacity for <laughs> for language. But if if you're reactive as a defense, and and I think this is a big thing here for what we're seeing to counter these. If you're reactive as a defense, then the offense is still dictating. The offense still knows what they want to do, and that means they can kind of move you on a string. So my favorite, my favorite single like frame of the video is when I'm talking about the Warriors peel switching 
And this is, of course, the the buildup of these defensive tactics that the video covers. So again, I'll let you, you know, people have seen the video know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen the video, go check it out. But basically, the idea is you don't do a one-to-one switch. You peel off to someone else and someone else helps you, your guy. And this can go down the chain ad infinitum. Um, my favorite play, Cody, is when you see Clay Thompson go to help. And the traditional thing is he runs into the paint to help. And then Curry runs into the paint to recover. And then Clay Thompson changes directions and runs back out to the corner. And you create a long closeout this way. And you cre- create a lot of running and scrambling and changing of direction. This is the advantage that the offense has when they're proactive, when they're dictating. They have the defense on a string. Um, the peel switch in that play gets rid of all those changes of directions. And it just has Steph Curry, who's running over in the first place, go, ah, I'm going to keep running and just go into the corner. And Clay, all he has to do is take a couple steps toward where Steph Curry was. That's the brilliance of the peel switch. Um, yeah, so it, it all kind of stems from there, I think. Yeah, the brilliance is it makes it more economical instead of it just kind of being... Because, you know, when you think classically about, oh, you put a team in rotation, I think the idea of it is like the defense is scrambled, right? You're turning them into an egg you're beating them in the pan, so to speak, in the sense that, like, they're all over the place. Somebody's going to make a mistake because you're just not going to get it. But this, like, simplifies it, right? Like, there's an easy place you can go that's just a couple of steps away. And something that you really you hit on here, I think is really important about this kind of defense, is basketball is about... Who dictates what happens on the court, right? And people have talked about this with superstars and floor generals and everything else. It's mostly about offensive players and history, but it's like, oh, so-and-so plays at their own pace. I think this is a very LeBron, like Miami Heat LeBron-centric thing, like slow down the pace. You have this complicated offense, but at the end of the day, LeBron's like, you know what? I'm just going to take control of this because I know I can handle it at my own pace. But this is a good way for the defense to kind of revert that because the defense needs to switch that on their head and not be like, all right, we're going to respond to everything you do. Instead, offense, you're going to do exactly what we want you to do. Instead, we're going to make you leak out some clock and come to something um, near the end. So I think that's a really cool point to focus on. Yeah. Um, and and I think it I think it segues into something else in the video, which is you can see the Celtics trying to keep Rob Williams near the basket last year in general. They, right, This peel switching where you kind of peel off the play and go help someone else who went and helped you instead of a traditional switch at the, at the point of the screen. Um, you know, uh, anything else that's like, quote unquote, scram switching or triple switching where you kick a kick a small player out of the post for a big man all these tactics can be used to keep a player like rob williams near the basket we talked about this last year we did videos on this last year and that's because rob williams as a defender his best attribute is rim protection his best attribute is timing up vertical shot blocks being just a a menace around the paint Um, he's long and quick off the floor and so you wouldn't necessarily want him chasing the you know, 100 feet of three-point line or whatever it is he has to run around on the outside and cover, you want him roaming near the basket. So that's another example of the defense. Yes, in one sense, you're protecting him. You wouldn't want him to come out and be part of the pick and roll necessarily against a guard that can stretch him and and kind of use their speed and skill against a slower big man. But it's also the defense dictating to the offense, hey, we got our shot blocker down here. We want to keep our shot blocker down here. We know you're going to try this stuff with screening, right? We know you're going to bring up Rob into the screen by using his man to set the screen. But because we know that, we're actually going to start dictating to you. We're going to start dictating where the pieces on the court are. We're going to keep Rob low, and we know you. Not, we're going to keep Rob Williams low. No, we're going to try that again. We're going to keep Rob Williams low on the court. Has nothing to do with Rob low, um, and, and and then we're going to have someone else be part of the screening action. So I think that is an enormous component of what's going on because I think. After this, in a second, we're going to talk about counters and some of the discussion that came up in the in the YouTube comments. Again, uh, if you're listening and you were part of that, I mean, this is this is one of my favorite parts of doing this, where you get this dialogue where people are injecting these really thoughtful ideas from different perspectives, and I want to tackle them. But a lot of it stems from 
the defense dictating versus the offense dictating, and then who's the one being predictable? Who's the one where it's like, oh, I know how this system works. I know the guy comes up and sets the screen, and then the corner man lifts up five feet, and then the guy with the ball wants to throw a lob pass to the roller or a skip pass to the man in the shooter. Once the defense knows all that, then maybe they can start dictating back to you. And it's just this constant arms race, this yo-yoing back and forth of like, I know that you know that I know that you know. It's uh, it's spectacular. Yeah, it's like a James Bond movie, right? Like, they, you, you sit down, you're having a drink with each other. And, <laughs> you like, mean you tell them what know. you're going to do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, no, it's before that even. But they both know that the other is the villain. They're James Bond, right? But you have to keep the airs, right? You have to have your suit. You have to have a really long conversation about something that's not related to it all. It's, it's, it's exactly like that sort of thing. But I think the thing with your video is you frame it a lot around, like, Jokic. Like, I think Jokic and the way that the Nuggets play defense with this shifting defense is kind of the impetus of why you made it. Am I, am I right about that? Like, Jokic is, is sort of why you made this? Well, um, I think seeing another step forward, seeing another level of this tactic in that Nets game is what prompted me to make the video because you always see little incremental things throughout the season, but that one incremental step doesn't necessarily go, ah, this is something to talk about. But then finally, after a while, you get like five or six incremental steps and you realize, wait, something's going on here. There's a, there's a larger shift going on here. Um, pun intended, I guess in this case, because what happened with the Nets is We've seen, the, I mean, sorry, the, the Nuggets game versus the Nets. We've seen the Nuggets and many teams hedge with their big man. Two on the ball and then you recover. Um, they also drop, of course, right? Like Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Nikola Jokic, they drop. But the thing is, if you're Jokic and you're not a great big vertical rim protector, if you're not like one of these Brook Lopez guys, you don't actually gain a ton necessarily by dropping depending on your opponent. Against the Nets... The Nets were playing a micro ball lineup. They had no big men in the lineup during stretches of this game. It was five, not only just five wings and smalls, but guys that could all shoot. And in most cases, guys that could dribble. So all of a sudden, there isn't a cozy place to put Jokic anyway, right? And so that leads to this thing of like, well, what if we just switch the ball screen which nullifies the advantage of the ball screen? That's a, that's a really important thing that um, can't be overstated probably. Cause like my wife was watching the video and she's, a, she's a casual basketball fan and she watches some games here and there, but she was like, well, well, hold on, wait a second, go back. What's this, what's this pick and roll play? And I'm like, think, wait, you think about it. If you don't switch the screen, then you have to pay the penalty of going around the screen and that creates a two on one and yada, yada, yada. So, okay. So if you're the nuggets, let's just switch the screen. But then we have the problem of Jokic being in a mismatch. Well, he might be in a mismatch anyway. Okay, so how, so we take away the advantage of the screen. How do we nullify the mismatch then if we're switching Jokic? Is that our defense? And to me, watching that game, the answer was like, oh my God, no, that's not their defense. Their defense is switch and double. Okay, that still doesn't seem that crazy, switch and double. But the, the last part of it, Cody, was like, it's it's all these tactics put together because what they're really trying to get to is switch and double and then this particular type of rotation with a peel switch where instead of having to recover to who he switched off of, Jokic just goes, well, it doesn't matter who I guard, so I'm just going to go rotate to the nearest guy and the rest of my teammates will rotate over. And the real technical term for what's happening there that I didn't get in the rotation is called nexting. It's a next rotation it's a next pick and roll coverage um you know th this has been around for a couple years is popularized in europe and the key to the whole thing that you see in all these clips in the video and many teams are switching to it around the league is you pull that third defender so if you double the post right i throw it i throw an entry pass to the post i'm at the top of the key you need a third defender to come over and pick up that player who just threw that pass well, then his guys open on the weak side. Okay, so the next defender over on the weak side, he rotates over. And this whole dance where everyone's rotating like a clock or a wheel, um, that's the thing I'm just calling the shift. The ability to just have everyone bump up one spot. 
and and this is becoming more popular uh this this whole dance of nexting and peel switching because when you next you kind of have to peel switch anyway you don't want a one-to-one you that guy's going in the corner He's rotating to the corner or something like that. Those are the Steph Curry plays that you'll see in the video where he's coming off and peeling to someone on the other side of the court in his sort of line of, uh, not line of vision. What would you call that? His direction, the direction that he's moving in, the line that he's running on. Um, Anyway, there's a ton of technical stuff going on there, but that's the idea. And I had never seen a team just outright use that as a way to protect a defender uh, like the Nuggets did. And so I think the the forward-facing thing is like what's happening in the playoffs. What is this going to look like in the playoffs as more teams have more of these tricks to pull from in their bag? So a couple of thoughts on this, because again, something that you use to build up to this is the traditional idea of like double teaming in the post is let's say the guard comes down and double teams in the post. So when the post player kicks back out to the strong side to the to the player that's now open, the guy that initially doubled is recovering back to his man. Right. It's a very like it's a very Jackie Moon sort of situation, right, where you're inbounding, <laughs> you're, you're throwing it, you're entering it. They kick it back out, enter, kick it back. You, you know what I'm saying? That's like the that old sort days. Of, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the old days. But now instead of doing that, you peel off or you, you next or you shift to somebody you else. Have, you have another guy come over. And so there's a third guy involved in those original two players. And then the dance begins. And I think what's really interesting, and the players that I'm I'm fascinated to see this used against the playoffs, I, am, I immediately think of Joel Embiid and Luka Doncic, because both of these guys love to get these like like mid-post isolations, where it's an empty-sided one, there's no one else on their side, right? And so if it's empty-sided and you're able to shift your next super easily, you have a lot of guys over on the other side, so you can't necessarily skip to one of them because you can effectively guard four guys with three players, right? Because they can cover, cover a lot of ground with that skip pass. So I think that's going to be one thing I'm going to watch for is these guys that really do rely on an empty-sided isolation sort of attack. And like I said, those are the two guys that first come to mind. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, one of the things that I think came up in, in the comments, the sort of first idea that I want to talk about, um, people said, you know, like, how do you think this kind of defense where everyone's shifting over one spot, how does that fare against teams that use more off-ball movement like the Kings or the Warriors versus a more stationary team. Um, first, I think in general, Cody, and it, it's a generalization because obviously there are occasional times where you want space and you want to just spot up and create space. But I think in general, movement is always harder to guard than being stationary. And as we've seen defenses leap forward in the arms race with offenses – and make no mistake about it, like offenses are winning the arms race because of things that haven't been utilized in the past. The three-point shot, the nature of having multiple players with skill on the court, all this stuff is, and if we've done entire episodes on this, you know, playing more um, offense-first players than defense-first players and living with the, with the trade-off. But these are things that weren't tapped into in the history of basketball. Now they're being tapped into. The officiating is also helping offense juice those numbers. And I think if the officiating weren't there um, as part of this, we would have more of an appreciation for how much offenses are trying to keep pace. I mean, how much defenses are trying to keep pace with the offenses because defenses are way more complex. And even just going back to like 
Kevin Durant and the Celtics last year and the way the Celtics defended Kevin Durant and their scheme against Kevin Durant. It works when everyone else is stationary. It works when the movement on the court is, I'm Royce O'Neal and I'm Seth Curry and I can shoot threes and we're both on the weak side in the corner. And you know what we're going to do? Seth, check this out. This is revolutionary. You're going to walk into the corner and I'm going to walk to the break where you were. That's going to really mess with the defense. And the thing is that like that little corner exchange of two players, they, sometimes they used to just stand there, one in the corner, one on the wing. And then over time, coaches realize like that's easier to guard. So what if we exchange them at times on the possession? It might feel like there's a cut. It might feel like you have to worry about a cut. Um, and the thing is that worked at first. That, that extra little movement can create a lot of problems. But now teams, defenses have a better way to handle it. Defenses realize, like, actually, we don't need to worry about that movement if we know it's coming. Um, and I think the most basic counter for defenses, by the way, is they just switch it. So they just keep a man low guarding the corner, and they keep a man at the elbow guarding the wing. Um, so that's still kind of stationary. And... Kevin Durant, knowing that Kevin Durant wants to get a screen under the basket and come up to the free throw line and then do the Celtics were like, well, what if we just what if we just deny his path? What if we just strong deny and get in his way? The Warriors did this in the game against the Nets as well. Early season game last year in Brooklyn, um, where it was it was at the time sort of a big statement game because they went in and blew him out in Brooklyn when it was looking like a big showdown game. Draymond Green wanted to deny Durant that catch. So that's a stationary offense. It's easier to do that against. You start to put movement in. You st- that's why we did the whole video on stampeding and the 45 cuts and backdoor cuts and pairing your cuts with a breakdown. Like Now all of a sudden you run spread, pick, and roll. And the second the ball handler gets downhill with the roll man, boom, I cut from the corner. Next time I don't cut from the corner, the wing cuts and the corner like stays there, lifts up to the wind. Just adding these little extra wrinkles makes all of these tactics harder. Goes back to the big idea of who's dictating, the defense or the offense. Uh, I think the more you move offensively, the, the more you prevent the defense from sitting there and teeing up on you. And, you know, another another situation where I'm thinking about just like how much a, a team is selling out to prevent a player just from getting in their path is is the, the recent Raptors-Lakers game, right? Where OG Ananobi was selling out to just not let Anthony Davis roll to the basket. Like, he would just meet him at like the, the elbow extended and just like stonewall him from getting there. Like, he's not going to get further. So it forces the Lakers and the Raptors to basically play four on four. You can even go back to Matthew Dellavedova against Steph Curry back in uh, with the 2015 finals where he ends up hospitalizing himself, where it's like, I'm going to sell out to make sure you're not able to run freely through this. I'm glad you brought up the idea of stampeding in 45 cuts here, because one thing, I saw a few people bringing up this sort of idea in the YouTube comments I was thinking about and I was watching, is do you think that there is like, I don't want to say simple in a pejorative way, but is there sort of a simple counter or response or cut that a player can make. Because when I'm watching it, I'm like, I, I can't imagine like a 45 cut being a good answer to this because it, it still feels like the defense is, has a good uh, control of the space there. So I don't feel like that's the answer. Do you think that there's like a clear one thing that a team can do to blow up this action off ball? Because a lot of the examples that you used in the video were a little bit more stationary. I didn't see the off ball players trying a lot of uh, uh, movement on the side. So... I, I don't know. What do you think is a good offensive counter to this shift? So as I said, I think I think movement in general is harder to guard. So I think there are some counters. I think there might be some cuts that present themselves as counters. The brilliance of this, though, Cody, is if your players are on the same page, they organically handle those cuts, right? And so the hard part about this is as the game gets more complex, as you cut, as you move, as there's more screening, as the offense understands what you're doing in recovery, then you have to be more on the same page defensively. So if you just go back, there's a coach, I I wanted to fit him in the video, um, but I couldn't, uh, Coach Will Voigt, who's been all over the place, he used to be with the Spurs, he's coached the Angolan national team and things like that. he basically built an entire defense around peel switching, which I believe they just call the peel switching defense. 
And if you look at the principles that he has in there, you listen to him talk about it. Basically, if your communication isn't perfect between the players, you kind of lose the advantage that I demonstrate in the video. Because if two guys are going to, you have to have one guy who knows he's going to the new man and the other guy knows that he's going um, to someone else. And, and if you don't have that at the right time, it opens up these cuts because it's like, oh, I think I'm supposed to go over here. I think player A is supposed to take this guy and maybe I take player B. And there's that slight moment of hesitation, not understanding, um, even all the way down to the peel switch itself. Like if you aren't on the same page about the fact that some new guy is coming in and this is where a player like Draymond Green is a cheat code. Uh, he's, he's, he's just such a brilliant defender because say what you want about his awareness and his reaction time and his horizontal movement and his skills blocking shots and playing at the basket and guarding all six positions. Um, like he communicates like a bullhorn out there. And so he does it. You can see it on film with his hands in the air, pointing for switching, telling people where to go, and then just yelling. You can hear him even. You don't need a hot mic necessarily to hear Draymond yelling. And so there's no ambiguity. So I think it's one of those things where like it's actually hard to get right and get the defense on the same page the more complex it is. But if the, if the offense is not the one dictating anymore, then it's not as complex. So, very long-winded way of saying, yes, I think movement and cuts can start to create counters, but I think misdirection, I think doing something unexpected, I think realizing what the defense is doing and saying, okay, how can it look like we're screening this way? Then all of a sudden we screen the other way. Or the example I use in the video of Spencer Dinwiddie going, okay, it looks like I'm going to accept the double team and make this pass. And then, of course, he's not accepting the double team to make the pass. He's waiting for Jokic to leave and start peel switching. And then he starts attacking again. And it's like that creates ambiguity in the defense. And I think that's where the offense would start to to counter back. I think that's going to be something that I watch for a lot of seeing how offenses kind of push up against it. See where they can find the the cracks in the wall to kind of get their fingers in and pull the whole thing apart. Um, this makes me think, maybe this is a bigger question, Ben. Maybe we can save this for another time. But when, when you're describing this, right, you're describing this kind of a defense. And th- the thing that I'm imagining is like, wow, you really have to have some high-level defenders out there, or at least some like high-level spatial defenders out there to make this sort of thing work. But also, if you're going to beat like a high-level defense, you have to have players on offense that can counter it, that can read and react, that just kind of like know how to put themselves in space in a way that's going to open up their team for better opportunities. So, Ben, I guess the bigger question here is like, what is actually more damaging to a team? To be a player that's an offensive liability or to be a player that's a defensive liability? Ooh, uh, to be a player who is a offensive liability or to be a player who's a defensive liability um can we come back to that one let's come back to it yeah okay let's come back to it we'll come back to that question about who's a bigger liability because i want to think about that but before as i as i delay and stall and think about it in the background um well it has me thinking about another component here which is is it better to or let me rephrase this are you almost falling into the defense's hands if let's go back to the 76ers offense offense there's a play in the post credits and there's there's a ton of interesting plays because a lot of teams are using these principles around the league um this season especially so there's a play in the post credits if you want to see it where james harden ends up on an empty side by himself with the ball and the celtics send a double I think there's probably a mismatch that they sent. So the Celtics send a double. When they send the double, exact same concepts happen. Next guy comes over. Everyone goes into their shift rotations. And what happens is instead of looking to hit that first player with the pass that you see so often in the clips in the video, Harden being a, you know, offensive genius, um, Harden goes, oh, okay, they're sending that weak side player into this action, I'm not going to make that first pass. I'm going to skip it and throw it two passes away. 
What happens when you skip it and throw it two passes away, Cody? The ball's in the air longer. It takes longer for defenses to recover. And this has been something that the offense has used against the defense for a long time because the traditional way of doing things is that, it goes back to that, Clay Thompson play with the arrows. When the ball's hanging in the air and you're running in the direction, the wrong direction against the pass, you have to slam on the brakes and turn around and sprint in the other direction. But the brilliance of this system is it's trying to prevent that for the defense. So what happens on the Harden play is he goes to throw it to the first, you know, the guy one pass away at the top of the key. I don't remember who it is, PJ Tucker or Tobias Harris or whoever plays for that Philadelphia team. Um, goes to throw it to him, and there's already a defender there. So Harden, being the player he is, goes, I'm going two passes away across the court. Jalen Brown doesn't have to change directions. That's his rotation anyway, and he picks it off. It's an easy interception for him. It's like a cornerback in football. Cody, I'm sorry to do this to you, American football reference. It's like a wide receiver throwing an out route to a, uh, let me try that again. It's like a quarterback throwing an out route to a wide receiver when the defensive player, the cornerback, is sitting on the pass. That's what it looks like because Jalen Brown is rotating in that direction anyway. So now that I've mentioned football, I completely forget your question or what we were talking about. Um, remind me, how did, how did I get here? Well, now I'm just stuck on what's the difference between a cornerback and a quarterback. Like, why would you just have two positions that just sound exactly the same? It, it's, the sport doesn't make sense, Ben. Uh, the, the question that got us here is I was asking, is it, is it better or is it worse to be an offensive or defensive liability? Because on one hand, like defensively, even if you're like a defensive liability, like you just said in that play with the 76ers play, the, the rotation is almost baked in for you, right? But that's not always going to be the case. You still really need to be on you still really need to be on the same page with your teammates. But I guess the same thing with offenses. Like if there's a, a certain pass that triggers a 45 cut, great. You know how to make that 45 cut because it's baked into the offense. But being a good offensive player is so much more than that. You actually have to have skills that can capitalize on them. So I don't know if that's the question that you wanted to me revisit. So I'll I'll just say it again because I think that's what you're talking about. Would you rather have an offensive or defensive liability on your team? No, no, I was still stalling on that question. I was. Uh, well, that was the question that got I, us here. I no, thought I'd revisit it. Yeah, I was trying to remember another question. <laughs> now you've really done it. Um, would I rather have an offensive liability or a defensive liability? Well, if you have an offensive liability these days, what what are we counting as an offensive liability? Andre Roberson. That whole situation. Poor Andre, what a great defensive player he was. Just constantly getting picked as this archetype. But essentially, in that case, what we're talking about, would Matisse Thibel be a modern example of this? Where it's a player... Here's how I would I would describe what I'm getting at. A player who basically can't shoot, and then his actual on-ball possessions don't really help extend advantages or create um, breakdowns and pressure defenses by themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you that can't, sounds right. Yeah, you can't give the ball to Matisse and have him pressure the defense and create something, whereas Russell Westbrook can't shoot. That's its own problem. But if you run offense through Russell Westbrook or you get him in transition or you get, get him spread, pick, and roll, he can still pressure the rim and he can still make passes with a live dribble. So I wouldn't put him in this category. So I think that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. If you have that player, now you're playing four on five. Um, and so what seems to be happening is almost almost like a related thing to this entire game of hunting hunting weak defenders. The offense says, well, I'm just going to... I mean, the defense says, I'm just going to ignore you. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore you. I don't care about you. I'm going to take a, a defender like Jaron Jackson. I'm going to take a defender like Draymond Green, and they can just roam off you. Because we really don't have to worry about you. We would love you to please, please go ahead, shoot your 28% three-pointer. We would absolutely love that. And as long as we're not getting destroyed on the offensive glass. Oh, can I shout out Jared Vanderbilt right now? Have we reached that, have we reached that point in the show? Um, see, Jared Vanderbilt is so interesting because he is a non-shooter which will create issues for the Lakers and things like that. And I think there are matchups where we're already seeing that because Anthony Davis is really at this point in the league kind of a non-shooter as well because teams will be like yeah you want to take your 32 percent three-point shot or whatever it is we'll gladly give that to you but Vanderbilt is like 
teetering on the line of something else because his offensive rebounding is so good. He's so good at cutting and timing his cuts into space. And because he's a 6'9 athlete, he can finish both the offensive rebounds and the cuts. And he's got a little, he's got like 12% Russell Westbrook where he can actually dribble the ball and in transition, like get downhill. And he's a really good passer in those situations. Anyway, I just had to, we just had to hit the bingo card at least once today, Cody. Um, So that's the offensive liability I think we're talking about. The defensive liability here is, well, in the video, I talk a lot about these these superstar MVP level players. Steph Curry, traditionally in the playoffs, Nikola Jokic this year, Denver has the one seed. This is fascinating to see how they protect him with some better defensive personnel around him, like Bruce Brown, like like KCP. These guys that can get into the ball, these guys that are big, they're switchable. I mean, both both KCP and Bruce Brown are really big guards who are switchable. Um, that's the fascinating part to me, but especially in Curry's case, like Curry's not a bad defender. It's just he's the weakest link in the... What what are you going to do against Golden State's defense? You're either going to eat Crow or you're going to get in there and you're going to go, okay, what if we attacked a mismatch? What if we hunted somebody? Well, should it be Draymond Green? Should it be Andre Iguodala? The man might go to the Hall of Fame for his defense. Uh, What are you down to? Clay Thompson? I mean, in the old days, it wasn't going to be Andrew Bogut. You know, it's not going to be Andrew Wiggins now. So, so I actually think when you're asking this question, right, you're talking about Trey Young at like the extreme end of the spectrum versus a defender who, I mean, Curry is a very solid guard defender at this point in his career, right? Am, am, I, am I understanding the question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if that's the case, um, what's the penalty you pay there? The difference between Young and Jokic, just to stick with him as an example, Young doesn't rebound. Young doesn't occasionally block shots. Young isn't a wall. When when Jokic gets to rotate back toward the basket, he's like a semi-effective defender. He's a big body who positions himself well, reads the game, has excellent hands. I, I almost feel remiss not getting into his kick saves defensively, which I think is his own <laughs> its own thing. Like, if you're going to be a goalie, if, if you're going to be Patrick Waugh and Martin Brodeur out there, Cody, that's a hockey reference for you. It's a Canadian sport. Um, <laughs> if, if you're going to just kick passes and prevent them from ever getting by you, that, that could be its own thing. So, Trey Young doesn't do any of that. That's the interesting part. And, and it's fascinating to me because the game is so offensively centric today that uh, our, our friend of the show, Nate Duncan, from the Dunked On podcast, he's talked about how he's worried about Jokic's defensive shortcomings are so apparent in a playoff series that it actually takes away a good amount of his offensive value. And I don't think he thinks of Jokic as a, as a top five player in the league because of it. So... Um, yeah, those are all my thoughts. I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing it back at you. What do you think? So I think here's what complicates it, right? I think actually landing on what defines like an offensive or defensive liability really complicates the issue. Because I think somebody like I think of, going back to one of my favorite all-time teams, the 2004 Pistons, is Ben Wallace an offensive liability, right? Because I thought he had some like basic passing chops, right? He wasn't awful with passing the ball, but he also had the offensive rebound thing. Like he could keep a possession alive. Right. And a little, little rim finishing with the same thing. Like you can throw it up to him at the basket if he's open and he's not six two, so he's gonna yam it right in someone's face. Yeah, that's exactly it. And he can actually create transition opportunities because of his defense. So in a way, like, is Ben Wallace an offensive liability? I mean, yeah, but like is he the worst offensive liability? I'm not exactly sure if that's the point. And I think another interesting part, an almost inflection point in this conversation, I don't remember which year it is. It's somewhere in the mid-2010s. But it's the season when the Warriors are matched up against the Grizzlies in the playoffs. And this is exactly when you talk about just leaving somebody in the corner. It's when the Warriors started their system, their scheme of just putting Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen in the corner. And Bogut would just help in the paint. And there was nothing Tony Allen could do. And now, since then... I feel like that was such a moment. That was such a, 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 a play sequence that stands out in people's minds that you just don't see that anymore, right? And so I actually struggled right now, Ben. Are there a, I feel like there's a lot more defensive liabilities in the league 
than offensive liabilities that get playoff minutes, right? So if we think even to like the last couple of years of the playoffs, what player is getting big minutes that's an offensive liability? Whereas like I can point to a couple players that get minutes in the playoffs that are defensive liabilities, right? So I think it's really tough because I don't have like an idea of what an offensive liability looks like on a playoff team. Because, you know, maybe last year you have Josh Green, whose minutes got reduced significantly in the playoffs. His offense looks better this season. I, Dr- I don't know. Draymond, Draymond Green last year, I think, was the more, uh, the larger scale example of that. And we saw some of that in the finals tactically, where they were trying to exploit that. Uh, but you, you had a final thought there. No, I, I guess that was my question. Maybe Draymond Green fits this, but what other players in the NBA are getting playoff minutes that are offensive liabilities? Well, uh, boy, you'd have to be a defensive specialist, right? Yeah. How many how many minutes did Matisse Thibault play in the in the playoffs last year? I don't know that off the top of my head. I he mean, played. I mean, I think that's I think that's probably the best type of example we're going to find a, a a very defensively oriented one way player who really struggles to provide any value on offense and creates this five on four scheming that we talked about. Yeah, he he played how many minutes? Do we have it up? He played so total in the playoffs. He played. Uh, 137 minutes, but I don't actually remember how many, how many games that is. I just I have like the, the I think they play basketball database. And- yeah, yeah, they didn't they didn't they didn't play too many games um, in last year's playoffs. So it, that's still going to be like rotation level minutes. It's uh, it's uh, 15 15 minutes per game. So you know edge edge of rotation kind of minutes there. Um, I think the other thing, here's the thing that makes this even more complicated, right? Because we go to guys like Trey Young, who provide value in offense. Maybe last year's playoffs, let's pretend maybe it was a fluke. He's not going to be that bad in the playoffs. Again, we could go back the year before where he's a pretty competent offensive player in the playoffs, and we've seen him be a high-level offense, like regardless of the fact that he's not as efficient. (laughs) Did you just call Trey Young pretty competent on offense? I did. (laughs) You know what? Things have gone sour for him the last couple seasons i'm just calling it as it is i need to see a redemption arc from last playoffs against the okay trey young is a very good offensive offensive player player. yeah fine trey young's an elite offensive player his passing is just off the charts we've talked about this before um you don't see a player swing a game defensively like trey young can swing on offense right like on a game-to-game basis do you see defensive players okay no i see i can i can see the counters coming up but on a game-to-game basis do you think there's a defensive player that adds as much value as trey young adds on his offense no 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 and that's what i meant earlier and i was saying it's an offensively slanted game so the the difficulty with this question is it's asymmetrical and so you might think like, oh, Ben, that's easy. It's asymmetrical, right? Like offense offense is really, really important. So if you have an offensive liability, it's worse. But it's also asymmetrical tactically because on offense, you get to dictate what you're doing. You get to decide who has the ball. So you can take your worst offensive player. He can be slightly below replacement level. Well, that's pretty low for an offensive player. But let's say he's a replacement level offensive player. Uh, he shoots 32% from three in the corner. He does a few other things. And depending on who you're playing and who the other four players are on your team, that might not matter that much. The Okay, we should get to, the, we should get to another component of protecting defensive players that I think is huge. I apologize for making people listen to the whole show to get to this point that we probably should have led with. Um, it really depends on who else is on your team. That's a huge, huge component here for using this strategy, right? If if you're the Warriors and Steph Curry is out there and then you have Jordan Poole out there and then you have, um, I don't know, I, I don't, I, we've picked on too many players today. Let's say you have another small, really poor defensive player out there who's like 6'3 or 6'4. Then all of a sudden a team says, okay, I want to attack Jordan Poole. That's the mismatch I want to attack. Now Curry and that other defender are the guys who are the ones rotating in and guarding big men and coming in for your peel switch and defending the rim. It's not Draymond Green and Andrew Wiggins and Andre Iguodala anymore. It's these other guys. So having versatile defenders around you, the difference between the Nuggets in the past, you know, a really weird thing 
Um, that's probably too nice of a way to phrase it. A not so cool thing has happened in basketball where like one season, one playoff series, one game, one play starts to stain a player's reputation and legacy. Uh, it's like rings culture amplified to the billionth degree where if you haven't, you, you've played two playoff years and you haven't won a championship, you stink. You're no good. And anyone who thinks you're good is a loser moron. Um, don't let, let's like this. This is the direction we're going in. I'm starting to get worked up and I'm thinking of the difference between Jokic's team where he has, you know, Facundo Campazzo running around out there and Will Barton and, um, are, are like who else was even on that? This is what I mean. Like you can't even remember the players on that team because you were down to bench players and you ran out of certain players at certain positions due to injury. There's no way to protect a guy like Jokic when he might not even be the worst defender out there on the court. So having big versatile defenders makes it possible to come up with schemes that allow you to protect players. Let's take the zone as another way to protect a defensive player, right? If you're a small guard and your weakness is containing the ball or something, but you've got like Evan Mobley, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Draymond Green behind you, forget about offense for a second. This is just a thought experiment. You could construct a zone where it's like, okay, depending on our opponent, we're still going to have the best defense in the league. They can go after they can go after the small guard as much as they want, but they got to deal with those giant versatile guys running all over the court, roaming the roaming the paint, patrolling the back line. Um, you swap out those guys for other weak defenders, and you can't protect them as easily. So, all of this is a thing to think about when you say which is which is easier to succeed with, which is easier to hunt: the weakest defender on the court or the weakest offensive player on the court. And the idea of like the the guys around you. This is what I was trying to get at. I think last episode where I was comparing the Kings and the and the Nuggets defensive players because I was like, if you were to draft the top five defensive players, I don't know how many are coming from the Kings. And if the Kings ran a scheme like this, I don't necessarily know how successful it would be. I don't know if you could protect Sabonis because again, I don't think there's very strong defensive players that are surrounding Sabonis. There are a couple of them, right? But overall, it's not like the Bruce Browns. It's not like the Jeff Greens. It's not like the Aaron Gordons, guys that are bigger and stronger and can rotate and play multiple positions. This is oh well. There's oh, a jump play. In. There's a play on in the video with the Kings using this tactic off a double team, and it's a great play for this conversation because the Bucks moved and swung the ball and cut and did some extra stuff and ended up with a layup at the basket. But you get to see it both ways because because the rotations were still there, right? They were still in position. There's no obvious counter. But what happened that ended up getting you a breakdown in a basket? Sabonis had to stretch to the perimeter. He's not as versatile. He he was late in the sense that he's not as quick getting to the ball to run a guy off the line. So he's out of position. So he jumps into the stands. All right, now you're back to five on four because Sabonis jumped into the stands. Who else was there to fill in behind him for the rotation? De'Aaron Fox. Again, the player's there, but De'Aaron Fox is my height, so he's too short. So you, everything is there, right? But the weaker the defensive pieces are in each position, you just go back to basic basketball. It's like if, if, you, if you can't challenge a shot, if you can't stay in front of your man, if you can't grab a rebound... You can have the best tactics in the world, but a team of fourth graders is not going to, you know, be able to beat an NBA team. I'm not. Yes. No, those are the Kings are my favorite. I'm not saying they're fourth. I'm just saying, like, at a certain point, physically, you're you're. If you have too many advantages, you need other other defenders to help you. That that will probably go viral. The fourth graders. <laughs> oh, not at all. That's a <laughs> it's a very popular comment. This is what makes me really like the Celtics going in the playoffs too, because I feel like as a team, like, and why we really like Grant Williams as a role player is they have all these guys that they can throw at all of these defensive rotations. They don't have to use this, right? I think, like you said, you framed this entire conversation around this is a way to hide weak defenders. And maybe, like you said, they use this sort of thing to keep Rob Williams near the rim. But if Rob Williams isn't on the court, they can do their, like, I, I don't know, the seemingly lazy switching scheme that they like to do, where it's like, oh, 
there's a ball screen. I guess we'll just kind of stay in this area because all their guys can rotate around and, and defend pretty much anywhere on the perimeter. And if they tried to run this shift, I think it would go really well because there's not really a clear place you would attack. And this is also why I'm going to say it again, man. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep harping on this to the playoffs. I'm really interested to see the Nets in the playoffs, especially. And this is why I really want to see Ben Simmons coming back, because if he's playing in there and he's up to his defensive level and he's healthy, that's a scary defensive scheme that's going to be coming up. And I think when you get to the playoffs, I think defense starts to get a little bit more important, right? Obviously, I think offense still reigns supreme, but I think in the playoffs, being able to be malleable with your schemes, being able to run the shift, being able to run a draft, being able to run a switch, doing all of these things makes you a lot more deadly. And a team like that, I look at them play. What, they hold the Kings to 101 points the other day? Like the Kings who've been scoring like 140, 150 points, held them to 101 points. I just think that's a really interesting team construction. I think a lot of coaches for this question uh, seem to err on the side of, I don't want a defensive liability out there. Um, the only reason I, th- I say that, because I think it depends on the team. I think if you're a team that just has no offensive talent, sometimes you're in the playoffs, you're in a series, you're like, God, we just cannot score. I'm going to put an offensive player out there who has all sorts of defensive shortcomings and I have to live with that. We obviously see the opposite. Um, I think we see the opposite more because playoff teams tend to have more skilled players. And then what you end up with is you end up with fan bases who are like, why isn't this guy playing? He comes in the game, he's got these skills, he averages 15 points a game. And then you watch his defensive film and you're like, it's because the coach doesn't trust him. It's because uh, there are breakdowns or miscommunications or things like that. So the box score doesn't capture that. Most fans don't sit there and study defensive film and they end up seeing something like, come on, this, when this guy gets in the game, he's instant offense. And he's like, yes, for the other team. <laughs> you know, that's uh, so. So I think it, I think it goes both ways. But if I had to like, judge from what I see from coaches and again maybe it's just the asymmetry of talent in the league but it seems like coaches are a little more concerned about having a defensive liability out there in the playoffs yeah I, I think that sounds right but also like you said I think it's very context dependent it depends on who's out there for your team and what your team needs are so I don't want to give like a blanket answer for what I believe because I do genuinely think it differs depending on uh, who's already out there in the lineup there's one team I want to ask about I, I don't think I saw any clips of them in the in the video and I think another way we can frame this is uh, you know this might land in like the Rob Williams peel switching sort of philosophy do you see the Timberwolves doing this at all because I can see it instead of like we have to protect, uh, uh, what's his name, Rudy Gobert from being on the perimeter. Instead, we want to keep him by the rim, okay? Do you see the Timberwolves trying this sort of defensive scheme ever? Boy, we can't quit the Timberwolves on this podcast. <laughs> um, I would have to check my my clips because the, the Timberwolves hedge so much. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Yeah. but uh, And then with Rudy Gobert, they drop a lot. So there's there's different coverages that wouldn't necessarily have you in these kind of next rotations, but I don't know off the off the top of my head because man, the Timberwolves are interesting when Jaden McDaniels is flying around out there, and uh, Jaden McDaniels is like hitting pull up threes the other day. I don't I don't know what's going on. Um, there's one more thing I want to say about this. A lot of people a lot of people brought this up, and I don't know. Uh, maybe you're the absolute wrong person to bring this up with Cody, but a lot of people are saying, Hey, there's a really cool cross sport um, crossover here, like multi-sport crossover where what you're showing on the screen in basketball, this is how we defend it in lacrosse. What you're showing on the screen in basketball, this is our conceptual defense in soccer, hmm. right? Like this idea of just reading a situation um, sliding over and 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 sort of taking someone else's guys they take the next person's guys they take the next person's guy it's it applies in a lot of big spatial sports like that and basketball of course is a spatial sport but it's played on a much smaller um playing field or 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 structure a court what's a court yeah, <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying um, I, I i get it yeah you you get the idea so i thought that was really Really interesting. I don't know if you have any other thoughts about that to to think about cross sport things and 
it got me thinking in basketball about how once again, I've used this term for a couple years now, we're talking about things that are hybrid zones defensively, right? Because conceptually, if you think about it, it's closer to a zone to just not have to follow your man around and move as much and just say like, well, I kind of am responsible for this space. If my guy goes by me, I stay out here and someone else slides in and takes my guy. Um, you know, if you help off the corner and I peel switch to the corner, then I've kind of stayed on the outside and this other guy has gone in. It's closer to a zone. And I think the last thing I wanted to end this conversation on was the future of defense. What's it look like in basketball? Because to me, I think you're going to get something closer to NFL football where you have teams disguising their coverages, mixing up their coverages, meaning meaning this possession we may be in appeal switch concept. The next possession, we're not going to play it like that at all. We're going to play it more traditionally. The more you show an offense in basketball the same thing, the easier it is for them to attack it and understand where its weak points are. I think this is, as an aside, the way, by the way, why we've seen every player now understand when, they, when they're coming downhill and pick and roll, like, I know exactly where my reads are. I know exactly how these passes work. And 15 years ago, when, when yes, we didn't have the same spacing and the same skilled shooters on the court, but there were only, only the best guards, only the creme de la creme, could be like, oh, look, I'm, I'm making one-handed skip passes 50 feet across the court. And now it's like, you know, sometimes you turn into summer league and, and the guys are making it. So throwing, throwing offenses off, what, what did I say? I said um, disguising coverages, mixing up coverages. I think you might see things where you even change the coverage mid-possession as a way to, to throw defenses off. And then the last thing to me is just these these hybrid zone concepts, this idea of, you know, everyone shifts over or peel switching becomes more popular. Or we saw it last year with the Warriors where they would just mishmash all kinds of nonsense. Box in one, triangle in two, two, one, two. It's just going to throw different defenses at you on different possessions. But either way, it's an extension of, of what's happening anyway in the sport, which is when two guys are on the ball and we have a four on three, those three players need to zone up and understand responsibilities. One guy needs to zone up too on the weak side. He needs to understand the reads and responsibilities. That to me is the future of defense in this arms race. And um, it's equally as fascinating as the offensive advantages that we've talked about. And going back to your, your sports references here, while I can't really contribute on this, I think and it was probably passe to like suggest this book, but it just reminds me of David Epstein's range and the idea of like bringing in all this information from different, uh, you know, it doesn't even have to be like a sport comparison. You can bring in these ideas from other concepts to inform your your knowledge and your work in another area, which is a good way why like generalists can succeed because you have this this body of knowledge from all of these different areas that when you combine it, right, it kind of leads you to the right direction. And I think going to that, I like I like the general concept like you're talking about with the the um uh with the future of defenses but i think it's really difficult to pinpoint and point to it and be like this is exactly what defenses are going to look like because first we have to see what the future of offenses look like because i think defenses it feels like is always in response to what the offensive change is in basketball so before we can like forecast exactly what it looks like we have to first see where the nba's offenses are going next if you want to support this show check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball uh, we have our live monthly Q&A, which is a lot of fun and gets into these kinds of conversations sometimes where people are asking questions like this and kind of driving the conversation forward. Huge thanks to everyone on YouTube who, who watched this and started flooding the comments with these kinds of questions and observations and sharing things about multiple sports to continue and spark this conversation. Hope you found it interesting um and of course as always i hope you're having a great day